This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. Welcome to a special bonus podcast brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. We would like to share with you a blast from the past featuring Jack Kornfield, Joseph Goldstein, and Ram Dass. You will be getting a new episode of the Heart Wisdom Podcast at the usual time. Meanwhile, we invite you to enjoy this look at the relationship between food, ourselves, and our practice. To find more talks like this, search for the Here and Now podcast in your podcast player. Subscribe to receive regular talks and guided practices from the Ram Dass archives. Don't forget that these podcasts are brought to you by the Be Here Now Network, which is only made possible through your continued support. Visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash donate to find out how you can support these podcasts, along with all of the retreats, live events, and daily content made available by the Be Here Now Network. Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. 
and then you eat it, realizing the eater, that which is eaten, are both Brahman, and the whole process is done as a sacrifice that it all may merge into Brahman. Now, there are other strategies of dealing with food in order to change the meaning of the food, the eating experience. One of them is a part of panya, a wisdom, that is a reperception of what it is that you're eating. And the other is a meditation exercise on eating itself. And these processes are guaranteed to change your experience of eating. I've asked Jack and Joseph to share with you these other perceptual techniques and experiment with them. So, if you will take another piece of food and listen to Jack first. Actually, the techniques that I'm going to share with you, which come from my teachers and out of the Buddhist tradition, um, are a number of them. And they're all designed for the same purpose of breaking the illusion of separateness between you and the food or breaking the attachment or desire. For it's not what it is that you eat that makes you wise and leads to the development of insight, but the process of how you eat it that will lead to that. And the Buddhist emphasis is always on the the attitude, the cultivation of certain mind states, the letting go of the attachment to sense desires. The first meditation that's done in the Buddhist tradition corresponds almost identically to what we've just done, is meditation on loving kindness and compassion, on the bodhisattva nature, and the sharing of your food with all the beings in uh, with all the beings in existence, the Chinese, when they do this, uh, in preparing a meal, will have a very special small plate and will take a portion of whatever food they've prepared for their own selves and set it aside in that plate and make it as an offering on the puja table um, in preparation to doing a short chant and. I'll share with you one Buddhist chant, a Pali chant, that's often used with food. Sabe lokami ye sata jivanta hara hituka manunang bojanang sabe labantu mama jetasa. May all sentient beings share with me this meal, and by the power of my merit, may all beings live with health and happiness. So throughout the meal, you keep to this mind state of loving kindness, of compassion, of sharing whatever is there with all the beings in the universe. 
Another technique to use in eating is to consider the elements. This to develop detachment and wisdom into the emptiness of self or into the Brahmanic nature of all that you're doing. So you take your piece of food and you hold it up and look at it and realize in it the aspects of the earth element of solidity, of hardness or softness, of the element of fire, the heat or cold of it, of the air or vibratory element, element of distension that keeps it in that shape, and of the element of cohesion that keeps it together, the water element. And you see that in the food and you feel it, you examine it, and then you look at your own body and you say, wow, there's the element of hardness, of solidity, the element of heat and cold, the element of vibration, distension, of cohesion, so all I'm doing is taking the elements and putting the elements into elements. And you'll notice when you chew the elements that they change. The hardness gets, the cohesion increases and the hardness <coughs> disappears somewhat. And you can watch the process <coughs> of the transformation of the elements from the food as you chew them and swallow them. Another way to approach eating, meditation, is to do a meditation on the emptiness. Again, related to the Brahmanic meditation that was spoken of, where you take a piece of food and you see that the food is not self, that there's no one there, just food. And you see your body reaching for the food and holding it, and you look at your arm and the rest of your body and you realize that that's not you, that's just the body. And you look at the mind that knows, that's watching that, and you see that that's not you either, that's just awareness of the, of the fact of the body or awareness of the food. And as uh, one very famous Buddhist teacher said, eating is like putting nothing into nothing. Another way, another technique to use to break down the illusion of self, of separateness, the illusion of permanence, is to look at the whole process of eating in terms of change, and the change of form, and also the change of feeling when you're doing the eating. I don't know what kinds of food each of you have, but you can imagine the genesis of most of it is food that grew from the earth, of the green shoot, and the ripe, the tree, or the, the stalk, or whatever, and the ripe fruit, and the picking of it, and the cleaning of it, bringing it, packaging to you, seeing the food there, and continuing the process, in your mind first, before you eat, of considering the change of the food, the eating of it, the tasting and swallowing, the change of that food into 
elements, nutrients for your body into excrement, back into the earth, and the whole cycle begins again of the regeneration of food. So that um, you see everything in terms of a flow, in terms of a process, and that it's all changing. That's another way to look at eating as a meditation. Another way to do it is to be mindful of sensation and touch. Don't pick up your food yet. Sensation and mindfulness of sensation is the basis for a lot of vipassana or insight meditation practice because it's something that you can see moment to moment changing very clearly the arising and ceasing of sensation. So in eating now or in eating any meal, you can be aware first of the sensation of yourself sitting there. You can be aware of the sensation yourself of hunger, of desire, the, the feeling in your body, sensation. When you reach for the food or the fork, you can be aware of the sensation of your hands touching the utensil or the food. Feel that in your fingers. Aware of the sensation of movement of your arm, bringing the food up to your mouth and of the sensation of the touch on your lips, the sensation on your tongue, in your teeth as you chew it, the sensation as you swallow, feeling it all the way go all the way down into your stomach. And by paying attention to the sensation, what you do is cut off the discrimination of your mind. You don't allow yourself to say, ooh, wow, that was delicious, or oh, that was awful. You're just mindful of the process of the sensation arising and ceasing as you eat, and so you're able to cut the desires. A way that's very commonly taught in monasteries, and especially um, talked about among the bhikkhus or the monks in the Buddhist tradition, is to look at food just in terms of its sustenance, the contemplation of food for sustenance. The body is simply a vehicle to be cared for and not to be pampered. And food is simply a means of sustaining life to continue your spiritual practice. You're not eating because you enjoy eating, but you're eating as a way to sustain your energy to continue your practice on the spiritual path. And there's a story that's told about the kind of attitude that if eventually needs to be developed in this meditation on food for sustenance. There was a couple and a young child that were crossing a very vast desert. They brought very little food with them and they had run out of food and just about run out of water. And they still had a long way to go and they were quite sure in fact that they would die. Well from the heat of the day in the desert, in fact the child did die. And the two parents decided, in order to continue the crossing of the desert and their journey so they would not die, that they would eat the body of the child. And the attitude of taking food, not out of pleasure, not out of desire or out of attachment, but simply for sustenance, just as those parents ate the flesh of their own child, is an attitude 
very powerful one that breaks through the greed and the attachment to the sense pleasures of eating. And there's another kind of meditation. When you've developed that attitude, you don't eat more than you need. All of these kinds of meditations are merely techniques, devices for developing balance in the mind. Because the whole of the Dhamma is just a question of balance, really. Here you have to balance your greed and your, your habitual patterns of enjoyment and attachment with the meditation to get you to a point where you're no longer attached. When I was first in the monastery in Laos, it was an ascetic monastery, and um, I'd been there a few weeks and was really checking it out to make sure that the teacher looked like, like he was enlightened and that all the monks were practicing right. And uh, I saw some things I didn't like. Monks were a little sloppy eating, or they'd, they'd get their food and they'd say their chant, and then they'd start to uh, eat very fast. And, and even the teacher I wondered about, there were a lot of things I wondered about. He would say very contradictory things at times to different people. And I went to him, I was very disturbed, and I thought of leaving, going to find a, another teacher, a better, better guru who fit my model of what a teacher should be like. And I said, I feel really uncomfortable. Why do you say one thing to one person and one to another about how we should eat or how we should act? And his answer to me was, the way I teach is very simple, he said. It's like someone walking down a path or a road at night, and sometimes they get off a little bit onto the right side, and I see them and I say, go left. And sometimes they almost fall in the ditch on the left side, and I see them and I say, go right, go right. That's all I do. And all of the meditations are, de are developing, are techniques to use to develop a balance of mind and mental factors. So I asked him further, I said, well, I'm still disturbed. Some of the monks are eating quickly, and, and even you sometimes seem to be sloppy. <laughs> it's uh, very hard to say. I thought a lightning bolt might strike me. Nothing happened. He just laughed, and he said, you have to be thankful for the appearance of imperfections in your teacher, the things that make him look like he's not enlightened. I said, oh, yeah? <laughs> and he said, because... If it were not for these imperfections, you might be deceived into thinking that the Buddha was somewhere outside of yourself. It's a good story, Jack. The balance of mind is the key. And um, when there's a very strong imbalance, you need strong medicine to balance it. Um, some of us really get into food trips, the Thanksgiving dinner or the going to the refrigerator and the pickles and olives and cheesecake and all of those wonderful things. Um, and in order to balance that, one other meditation that's used um, is to contemplate on the true repulsiveness of food. Think about it. 
The benefits of the meditation on the repulsiveness of food are that you really begin to know the nature of food and of the process. Your mindfulness grows. You understand the lust in yourself and you, you are able to let go of it. And the meditation on the repulsiveness of food begins with contemplation on the procurement. And you think, if you still eat meat, if you do, of the animals in their carcasses, and the flesh and blood and fat and the disgusting juices that run out when they're cut open. Or if you don't, the food from the earth, and even of the dirt of the earth, of the shit from the cows and the horses, the dirt of all kinds, and you try and wash it off. This whole society is trying to keep your food clean. They put in preservatives. If you read what's sold in the supermarket, there's a paragraph of DHT and DPT and everything else that's put in it to try and keep it from decaying. And you keep it in a refrigerator and you wash it. But just let it stand out in the sun for a short time. And it turns rancid and moldy and hard or rotten and foul and oozing and fermenting. And the meditation, as it's given in the scriptures for the monks, is he's eating his food, right? He's dipped his hand into the bowl and is squeezing it up and the sweat trickling down from his five fingers wets any crisp food that there may be and makes it sodden. And when its good appearance has been spoiled by his squeezing it up, and it's been made into a ball and put into his mouth, then the lower teeth function as a mortar and the upper teeth as a pestle and the tongue as a hand. And it gets pounded there with the pestle of the teeth, like a dog's dinner in a dog's trough, while he turns it over and over with his tongue. And then the thick spittle at the tip of the tongue smears it, and the filth from the teeth and the parts where the toothbrush cannot reach smear it. When thus mashed up and be smeared, this peculiar compound, now destitute of its original color and smell, is reduced to a condition as utterly nauseating as a dog's vomit in a dog's trough. Yet notwithstanding that it is like this, it can still be swallowed because it can no longer be seen by the eyes. And where does it go? It is swallowed by one who's 25 years old or 30 years old. It finds itself in a place like a cesspit, unwashed for 25 years or 30 years. And just as when rice is being boiled, the husks and the red powder covering the grain rise up and smear the mouth of the cauldron, so when eaten, it rises up during its cooking and simmering by the bodily fire that pervades the whole body, and it turns into tartar, which smears the teeth, and into spittle and phlegm, which smear the tongue and the palate, into eye and ear dirt, and snot and urine and excrement, which smears the respective eyes, ears, and nose and passages, and even though many, many washings take place, you can never clean it. Imagine, take your food and, and think about what's going to happen to it. No? Are you hungry? Do you want to? Please come have a pizza. Come on. The meditation on the repulsiveness of food is something that's hard for people in this culture to get into. But in terms of strong medicine, it's a very effective balance for the passions and the desires that go with the delicious taste of food and all the food trips in our culture, okay? So food isn't what it appears.
the very highest practice, the place where this initial balance developed leads to is the development of vipassana mindfulness. This is the mindful observation of all of the mind and body processes that are involved in eating as they change from moment to moment to moment, the thoughts, perceptions, feelings, sensations in the form. To quote the Buddha, the merit made in serving 1,000 mules to the whole order of monks with the Buddha at his head, at its head, cannot compare to he who develops clear insight into the arising and vanishing of phenomena for just one moment. Okay, so now Joseph will tell you how you can enjoy your reading and then get enlightened at the same time. The way to stay grounded in all of these different techniques and in all of these different reflections on the experiential level, rather than the conceptual or thought level, is... The way to stay grounded in all these different techniques and reflections on the experiential level, rather than the thought or conceptual level, is precisely to develop a very strong mindfulness of all the processes involved in eating. A lot is revealed about our own minds and bodies when we learn to eat with awareness, to eat mindfully. First, we begin to see exactly where it is, exactly that point at which desire arises. We become very mindful of that whole process of desire and our subsequent action upon it. Also, as we're observing the processes involved, there can begin to be a very deep and penetrating insight into the fact that it is all impersonal phenomena happening. There is no self or I or me or mine in the food. There is no self or I in the eating of it, in the awareness of the eating of it, all is empty, impersonal process going on. Eating meditatively is a very profound practice in the sense that one can attain very high states of samadhi and indeed can experience enlightenment in the very process of eating. And there have been many cases in meditation centers or where people are practicing to a very high degree that in the very process of lifting the hand they may either go into samadhi and the hand just stays there for as long as they're in samadhi or in the in the process experience the moment of nirvana experience enlightenment it's a very it's a very good practice to cultivate so what we're going to do now is to learn how to analyze with a silent mind to experience all the different mental physical processes involved in eating. The first thing that's done is the intention to look at the food. 
So that intention should be noted. Intending, intending. Then the head turns so that it can see the food. The turning of the head should be done mindfully, the whole process involved. Turning, turning, turning. As a result of the turning, the food, the color of the food comes into contact with the eye and seeing consciousness arises. There should be a mental note, a state of mindfulness to, with regard to the fact that we are seeing. So seeing, seeing, seeing. All the eye sees is color. The eye does not see food. Food is a concept. In this practice of mindfulness, we want to stay on the experiential level of the process. So seeing, seeing, seeing. Because of the seeing, the intention arises to move the hand to take the food. The noting of the mental intention before the act should be done very carefully. Intending, intending. Then the movement of the hand should be done very mindfully. Moving, moving, moving. Just experiencing the sensations of movement. No arm, which is a concept. No I, no self, no me, no mine. Simply the impersonal material process of moving and the process of knowing the movement. All done very meditatively, very mindfully, very silently. Silent awareness. Moving, moving, moving. The touching of the food. The experience of the touch sensation. The intention to lift the arm. The mental intention should be noted, intending, intending. That mental intention becomes the cause of the arm raising. The cause and effect relationship is, is seen very clearly. Raising, raising, experience the whole movement of the arm. No I, no me, no mine, no self, simply movement and the awareness of movement. The arm is brought up. Intention to open the mouth, intending, intending. The opening of the mouth, opening, opening. Very aware, very mindful of all the physical processes involved and the process of knowing. Opening the mouth, intention to put the food into the mouth, intending, intending. Putting the food into the mouth, placing the food the feeling of touch of the food on the tongue, just touch sensations and the awareness of them. No self, no I, no me, no mine, simply the awareness of sensation. The intention to close the mouth, intending, subsequent closing, not chewing yet, <laughs> unless you want to have your meal with your arm in this position. Intending to put the arm down, making the mental intention. Then the moving, making the movement the object of mindfulness. The intention to begin chewing. The subsequent chewing process. Watching the movement of the, of the mouth, of the jaws, of the teeth. The awareness of taste. 
the tasting that comes in the process of chewing. And just at this point, there is a very interesting thing which happens. Generally, after the first couple of chews, the taste begins to come out and then disappears. The food is still in the mouth, but rather tasteless. At this very point, because of our desire, our greed for more pleasant taste sensations, we often find the hand again reaching for more food. Food is still in the mouth and we're still chewing it, but the hand is going and taking food and putting in out of our greed for more taste sensation. If we become very mindful of the arising and passing away of the taste and the whole subsequent process of the food being mashed up, then the intention to swallow and the swallowing, reaching again the intention arising to take more food, noticing the intention, and then the reaching for the food again, following the whole process through the, through the taking of the food, the intending to move the arm, and the moving of the arm, and the intention to open the mouth, and the opening and the placing, the closing of the mouth, the replacing of the arm, the chewing, the tasting, the swallowing, all very distinct, impersonal processes happening. By cultivating this kind of mindfulness of process, not only do we become aware of how desire for food arises and watch that desire mindfully without identifying with it, but we can really penetrate into the, into the very basic nature of the entire mind-body process. And done very mindfully, it's a very, it's a very deep and penetrating meditation. As, as a general suggestion to those of you who are cultivating awareness or mindfulness, it might be, it might be a nice exercise to eat one meal a day in silence and very mindfully, very attentive to the entire process involved. It can take a long time, but it doesn't matter. Because the entire exercise becomes a meditation. And in this way we expand the state of mindfulness to cover the entire experience of our, of our activities. Begin to live in a very meditative state. It's a, it's a nice place of mind to be in, and I think it's, it's valuable to cultivate that kind of penetrating awareness. Hmm. A series of uh, ashram situations that I've been responsible for. I've done roughly the same thing each time of having a huge feast cooked. And we all plan this is going to be the final feast 
Everybody gets excited preparing the feast. Tables laid out, foods placed. Sit down, everybody's anticipating, been building up their hunger, desire. And then I've usually started with a long blessing of the food. And you can see that the cooks are thinking, food's getting cold. And I ask that we keep doing the blessing till everybody is doing the blessing. So the cooks have to give up thinking the food is getting cold in order to do the blessing. Then the blessing's finished and I say, before we eat, I would like to read to you the Buddhist meditation on the repulsiveness of food. Which I then do, and at that point, the cooks don't really care whether the food got cold or not. And then I proceed to start in saying the way we will eat, and then proceed to do what Joseph has just done, of lifting, lifting, putting, putting, tasting, tasting, etc. By then, the banquet is ruined. And it's an interesting question. If all the years you've been eating for your own pleasure, how much it costs to surrender a little of that pleasure into the becoming mindful of the process of eating. Those of you that have any weight problem will notice if you focus on getting thin, you'll be suffering all the time. But if you become mindful of eating, you will get thin. And those of you that are into cooking and into the exquisite subtleties of food, there's nothing wrong with any of that. That can be done as a yoga, too. But we have gone so far overboard now in sense gratification that our ability to even comprehend the use of food as merely survival and maintaining the body has almost been lost completely. Especially because we don't eat demand feeding, we eat schedule feeding. 8, 12, and 6, or whatever. And part of what sadhana is about is experimentation with each of the aspects of your life. And one of the aspects, one of the aspects is eating. On Tuesday, I'm going to continue, it turns out, since we didn't get too far, with the purification rituals, which means we're going to deal with truth, killing, sex, um, possessions and giving and receiving. And from there we will go into the social aspects of sadhana. And in each case, what we're doing is turning the focus of our attention on another aspect of our lives and bringing it into harmony with the wisdom that has been unfolding for us 
in the course of the sadhana thus far. So that ultimately you begin to feel a kind of a harmony and a kind of a harmonious oneness of your whole life. So it isn't like I'm holy on Sunday mornings and all the rest of the time I'm going under. Start to bring it all together, all together. There is an interesting uh, issue that comes up, especially in relation to Naropa. Because it would seem from one way of looking at enlightenment, <clears throat> we are already enlightened, there is nothing to do. <clears throat> and we look at some of the very high beings and we see that they do everything. And we read the holy book and it'll say, don't do that. And then you look at a holy being and he's doing it. And it was a, it's very relevant to what I said before about coming into the Brahman. Once you are residing in the Brahman, you are beyond form. There are no rules in the game at all then you will do whatever is necessary to do as the Dharma, because there's no desire anyway. And then you will appear to other people, you could appear to other people as a desiring, greedy person, but that's okay. That would be the Dharma at that point. And you can't judge how another person would manifest the Dharma. Someone in India was concerned about the fact that Trungpa's style of living did not seem commensurate with the sadhana that they had been told to follow. And they went to one of Trungpa's teachers and they asked the teacher about this and they said, has Trungpa fallen off the path? How should we understand what's happened? And the teacher answered and said, when you go to the top of a mountain, and there is a bird there, and the bird flies, don't think you can. So that I can sit in the presence of another being, like my guru would say to me, Ramdas, tell the truth. And then the next moment he would lie. My guru would say, Ram Dass never get angry. And I'd say, not even as a teaching device? And he'd say, nay. He would say angrily. Right? You're going to have to deal with these paradoxes. But at some point, certain things will be necessary for you to do. Later, it may not be necessary. There are certain things I do and then after a while, or I don't do, and then after a while I try doing them again. And sometimes when I try doing them again, it doesn't matter whether I do them or don't do them. And sometimes when I try doing them again, I get caught back in a desire and I say, no, too soon. And I go back and start not doing them again. Only you know which kinds of sadhana you need. But if you find one method particularly repulsive to you, 
That's a sign that you care. And if you care, watch out. Then you work with it. So if you say, I'm not going to ruin my food with the meditation that Joseph and Jack are doing, we got to you. Good. Good. 